All right, so uh, Romans, end of chapter 8. Um, what we're going to look at are some very well-known verses. And I say well-known, maybe, you know, if you've grown up in church, these may sound familiar or have some kind of church background. Uh, if you go to Hobby Lobby and you're, you know, shopping in the picture section, you might see some of these verses uh, in there. So, so these are ones that, we, that, are, that can be very encouraging. Um, and, and I want to make sure we know what, what, especially the first verse that we look at in this, this passage, we'll look at the context of it and the last passage, um, kind of the context of this whole thing. And, the, and it is suffering, which may not be the most, you know, like, oh, I came to church and we're going to talk about suffering. When uh, Kristen and I are looking for movies on Netflix, you know, I'm always like, hey, there's, there's my girl, there's Schindler's List. And she will not watch a sad movie with me. She doesn't do sad movies. She's like, I want to laugh and be happy and, you know, whatever. Um, and I, So that's not something we often choose to focus on and reflect on. I was asking Cody earlier this morning, hey, man, because I, I couldn't think of a whole lot of sad movies, tragedies, and said, what's a classic sad movie? He's like, I don't know. I don't watch them. Uh, so thanks, Cody, for your help. <laughs> But, but, but that actually, you know, proves my point that, that sometimes that's not, you know, naturally uh, the thing that we want to focus a lot on. But, but Paul goes there and he goes there in chapter eight after laying out what the gospel is. And it starts out really bad news that, that we all deserve separation from God because of our sin. And it is way worse than we could ever imagine. Because what we do is we compare ourselves to other people and we justify our actions and we're like, hey, you know, God's going to, you know, slide some of this stuff under the rug and I'll be all right. And, and, and it's way worse, our condition, than we could ever imagine. That our sin separates us from a holy, pure God and takes us out of the relationship he designed us to have with him. But then he, then he goes into chapter 3 and saying, but it's way better than you could ever imagine. The grace and the love and what God has done and the fact that he has done it all. That's way better than, than we could ever come up with. Because when we come up with, okay, we got to do something to be made right with God, it's, okay, we do religious stuff. And here's our ritual. And we go to church and we try to get, be good people and we, and we think that's going to make us right. And it's like, no, no, no. It's so, it's here, here the standard's way beyond anything we could reach. But God did it for us. He paid the price, and he paid for our rebellion and our sin, and, and that's what Jesus did on, on going to the cross, paying for our sin, and we're offered the option to receive that free gift or reject it. And, and, and then he's like, you know, we've gone through this, and I've talked to a lot of you guys. This has been really encouraging. It's not just that our sin is forgiven. Then we're given the worthiness, the righteousness, the holiness of Jesus is credited to your account. You look up your spiritual bank account, get online, check that sucker out. It looks better than your bank account probably. It's the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus is credited to you. That's what grace is, undeserved merit. And it's, it's, it's more than just our sins are wiped away. We're given his righteousness, then we're given the Holy Spirit to live in our life to, to work, and he gives us a gift to do his ministry, to be his ambassadors here in this world. And then we're adopted into his family. 
this isn't some, you know, second class, like you can come to heaven, but, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed by you and you got to like, I don't know, be in this section or something. No, he adopts us into his family, gives us full sonship, full daughtership, all this stuff. But then he realizes, well, some people are going to say, yeah, that sounds all great, but life stinks right now. So what's up with that? Like, I'm going through suffering and pain, and, and Paul's writing this book to the Romans, laying out the, what the Christian message is, and at the time that Romans is written, there's an emperor that just starts his reign called, uh, his name's Nero, and he's pretty cruel, and he's pretty vicious, especially to Christians, um, and, 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 and they're like, what? I, okay, this sounds all good, Paul, but, but man, we're going through such persecution and such pain and such suffering. And so he camps out here and shares how God works through that suffering and, and how he can actually use it and how that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you if you're going through something difficult or something tragic happened or you have an illness or whatever. That doesn't mean that God doesn't love you and that, that all these things that are promised to us and that, that the standing that we have in Christ is somehow negated or something and so that's what we're walking through and so before we jump into the passage that, that we'll focus on we let's give it the context that it deserves in Romans eight eighteen. it's not on the screen but he says yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory we will we will rev- I'm sorry he will reveal to us later and, and that's the whole message that he's giving like yes we're suffering now Paul knows him some suffering if you know his life and everything he's gone through, it's been very tough for him. But his perspective is like, oh, man, he calls it light and momentary are the descriptors he gives of all the suffering he has to go through. Why? Because he has this eternal perspective and he knows God's in control and that he can even work uh, through these evil things for our good. And that's where we'll pick up in Romans eight twenty-eight. Yeah, we ended it with it two weeks ago, and we'll pick it up there and then finish it. And it says this, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, doesn't that take on a little bit different flavor when you know the context of it? That it is talking and addressing people who are going through huge hardships and difficulties or will be soon. And just know that as Jesus promised, in this life you will have trouble. And then then we're given this. That God will work everything together for the good, but it's qualified. I know I've mentioned this several times. I don't mean to be repetitive, but it's so important that this passage, God doesn't work everything out for good. Period. He works out everything for good for those who love him. So the opposite is true. That Things don't work out good for those who reject God and don't love him. Um, and so his plead, his plea is to accept him and know his love uh, through Jesus. And then he, now here's the thing though. Here's what we mess up. When we say, okay, God works everything for good, in a, you know, even through the suffering, Our understanding of good, I think, is often very different from God's definition. Because our understanding is, okay, I have to suffer through, you know, I've got a job loss or illness or 
or, or you know, some, um, you know, uh, tragedy happening or, or a loved one's going through a difficult time or, or you know, relationship, you know, struggles or, or turmoil. Um, and so the good that God's going to cause is I'm going to get a better job and I'm going to be healthier and I'm going to have more, oh, I went bankrupt, but now I'm going to have more success and more, and that's not what God is calling good. That's not the goodness that God, that we just make it about us, we focus on us, and we think about our limited temporary circumstances in this world and say, this is for our good, because if I plan my life out for my good, that's what I'm talking about, right? I get, you know, these things that benefit me and my situation. But in Romans 29, he defines what good is. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Good, he defines as being like his son. That's the goodness. And, and, and you think about it. Could there be anything better that happens in your life than becoming more like Jesus as our ultimate example, becoming more what God created you to be like. And that's the good. That's pretty different than going to Hobby Lobby, buying this verse, slapping it on the wall, and just going, things are going to get better in this life. Not necessarily. They didn't for many of the people in Scripture. But going through those difficulties made them more like Jesus, drew them closer to who God is and in that relationship. Um, Verse 30. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. A um, couple of things to point out. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, there's some theological debate in here we're not, we're not going to address now. I think we'll get to that later as far as who does the choosing and how do we come to faith in Christ. Um, but... The focus here is who makes us right with God. Um, It's God. And he did this, and he did this, and he accomplished this, and he did this, and he fulfilled this. And so so he gets all the credit, and he did it all, and he accomplished everything. Uh, It's always focused on God doing. He's the, the, the active participant. We're pretty passive. We accept what he has done. That's our role in it. We put our confidence in what he's done. Um... Verse uh, 31 says, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? And when, we're, when we see questions like this in Scripture, there's not some hidden theological conclusion that like, ooh, this is mysterious. God wants to reveal his truth clearly and plainly. He does not reserve it for some select special theologians that that can only kind of wrap their brain around it because they've studied it for years and years. And so when we see questions like this, Paul's just using this rhetorical device to make something super clear. And so the the answer is always obvious when he's asking these questions because he'll have some more questions. And often he just follows it up with the obvious answer. If God is for us, who could ever be against us? Hmm. Who could that be? Nobody. That's the obvious answer. Since he did not spare even his own son, 
but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? And he reminds us, we're talking about suffering. God can use, for those who love him, he can take that suffering and, and do something good with it. And, and, and don't forget, this isn't a God who doesn't know experientially what suffering is all about. This is a God who even came down here in human flesh and suffered and died and, and totally can relate to that. Um, and so he, you know, points that, that important aspect in, in encouraging people through uh, what they're going through. Um, verse 33, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Again, I know it's repetitive, but who gave us right standing with God? Pastor Ben. Very good. No, it's not some spiritual human leader. It's not some, some organization. It's not some, uh, some works that you did or some system you plugged into or something like that. God himself gave us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. So in the midst of suffering and your questions and your doubts about, okay, does this mean I'm going through this? Is this God's punishment for me and I'm not really in right standing with God? And, and uh, No. And we, you have the credibility of Jesus himself pleading for you. If you have simply called on his name, as Romans says, that's what salvation requires. Us putting our confidence. And what does that mean? Well, first we recognize that we need to call on Jesus' name because we're, we're dead in our sin. And so we call on his name and depend on him and put our trust in what he's accomplished. And it says if you've done that, you've got Jesus as speaking up for you. And saying yes, this, this, and, and constantly on our, on, on our behalf. Um, 35, can anything, well, no, before we get there, because I think this is an important point, too, that, that Paul makes in the very beginning of the chapter, but who will condemn us? As he's thinking, you know, and that's, man-made religion is, uses condemnation to control and manipulate people. And, and this, this condemnation, this fearful condemnation that we sense and fear is wiped away. It says there is no condemnation, not like a lesser degree, but there is zero condemnation for those who are in Christ. And, and he points that out again. Who, who's going to condemn us when Jesus is saying, no, he's good. He's with me. I, I've, I, I've covered him. I, I've, I've paid the price like Whatever you're trying to condemn him or her for, nope, I'm, I'm here. I, I, got, I got, this is, they're with me. Um, the 35 goes on to say, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Because when you go through pain and suffering, and, and honestly, I don't want to pretend that I've gone through very much, but, but just trying my best to put myself in people's shoes and walking with some people who have gone through incredible pain and suffering, there can be a sense, has God left me? Does he still love me? And Paul is pleading with us to say, absolutely, that's not something that's going to leave you if, you've, if you are in Christ. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? 
or in or are persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death. As scripture says, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us, who loved us. And I am convinced, he's like, that's not enough. You guys are going to walk away, and I, I don't know if you fully get this. So I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mic drop and walks out. No, he's writing a letter. But isn't it a mic drop moment as he's encouraging these people who are suffering and will go through suffering and and, and like, ah, let me just ah, plead with you who Jesus is and what he thinks about you and how God views you. Like I said earlier, it's, it's greater. God loves you more and has offered an incredible amount of grace more than what you could ever imagine. And nothing, as you've gotten a taste of that, and now you think, oh, no, I'm gonna, am I going to lose that? Is there something I can do to, to lose that? Nope. There's nothing you can do to lose that. And he goes through a, a pr- pretty detailed list. And if he left anything out, he just says nothing can, can separate you from God's love. You don't believe me? Let me make sure that you understand. Not, not these spiritual, uh, de- demonic forces can't even do it. Nothing in all creation. Not your life as you live it and you make this decision or that decision. Not your death. Nothing can separate you from God's love. And as that's, you know... Hobby Lobby material right there, right? Like, that's a beautiful verse or picture. But, but it even, I think, takes on a, a little bit of a different view when you see, oh, that's given to us in the context of this life being full of trouble and difficulty and going through pain and heartache. Um, so here as we jump into your notes. Yes, we'll get to your notes. <laughs> we're just about, we're, uh, now we're just beginning the sermon, okay? Uh, no, no. Uh, but as we look at those notes, we're going to address what a lot of people would present as a huge problem. It, some people have coined it as the trilemma. That, okay, if God is all-powerful, and if he's all-loving or all-good, that sounds weird. Hey, yeah, he's all-good. Uh, I mean, all-good, yeah. Um, how is there evil? How is there suffering? And, and I think what people are trying to get us to do is say, if I, was all lo- if I was all loving and all powerful, even my limited love, but I was all powerful, I would wipe away evil and suffering in this world in a heartbeat. How could you say, and, and it's uh, you know, an argument against the God, that there must not be a God because there's evil. And if either he's a weak, wimpy God that can't do anything about it, but you're proclaiming this God of the Bible that supposedly is all-powerful, but yet there's evil, but he's all-loving and all-good. How did these come into play? And, and what, how we have to factor that and look, that, look at that 
is what the Bible says is that, that we have a limit, limited view of, of eternity. We have a limited view of, of what's happening. And so we're going to walk through and, and kind of reveal uh, more of that and what that means. Um, but before we get into suffering, I think this is a beautiful picture that Jesus gives because as I'm going to attempt to give some biblical answers to suffering and pain, I don't want to pretend that that somehow is going to just make you go, oh, okay, I'm all good, all better, walk out of here. Oh, I was, you know, sad and depressed and just stuck and, and you know, going through all this pain or a loved one of mine was and, oh, you gave me three little simple answers. We're good to go. Um, Jesus didn't do that and he was all knowing. Jesus, I, I love this picture. I, I grew up in church and I grew up doing things like, um, Awanas, um, little like Bible memory things and, and some Bible clubs and stuff like that. And what's the best verse to memorize in Scripture? John 3.16. That is the correct answer. But if you're a punk like me, as a kid, you want the shortest verse in the Bible, which is Jesus wept. <laughs> so correct. Gold star down here. Someone bring it. Um, But Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible is a picture of what Jesus does while people are going through some intense pain and suffering. And and he knows what's happening. He's off ministering somewhere else. He hears that his good friend, Lazarus, is is on his deathbed. And, and, And his sisters send word, hey, Jesus, come. We know you can heal. And he's, you know... And he finishes the ministry that he was doing and then arrives. And guess what? It's too late. Lazarus has died to the point, and and it's, you know, not not pleasant, but Scripture points out that he's definitely dead. This isn't a situation where, you know, he's frozen in a river and his body, you know, heart rate slows way down or is revived by uh, CPR or something like that. Like, he's... He's actually rotting, right? That's what scripture says. He stinks. <laughs> and he's very, very dead. And, and Jesus knows what God's called him, God the Father has called him to do in this situation. That he's going to do this incredible thing to show evidence of who he is, that he, he's over life and death. He's going to raise Lazarus from death to life. And a beautiful picture, of course, of ultimately spiritually what Jesus does for us on the cross and then pointing to his resurrection and all these things. But Jesus doesn't get frustrated with those who are suffering and in pain and say, quit crying. Hey, I've got it figured out. Just trust in me. Instead, he weeps. And the Bible says that's, what, that, that's a beautiful thing, to weep with those who weep. And, and as a church family, as we get more connected and you build relationships, you're going to run into people. That's one reason we promote life groups is because um, Jesus promised that if you're not going through some difficulty, you will go through some difficulty. And, and, and we've been given this gift of having people, uh, church family members, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us and to share grief together. And that's what I would encourage you to do. And I think Jesus gives a beautiful example. Don't whip out these notes with someone suffering and say, well, Pastor Ben had these three points. If you, you know, let me share with these three points while you're devastated. But just be there. 
and cry with those who are crying, weep with those who weep, and feel the pain and the suffering and, and help, help kind of lighten that by being there. There's something about just the presence of being with someone and sharing that with someone. And here Jesus knows what's happening, and yet he, he, he shows us. Uh, that that's a beautiful thing to do. Instead of trying to, I mean, I'll give you the example, and I don't mean to make anyone feel bad if you've done this. I've done things like this. Uh, sometimes we use really, really bad theology even. You know, I've heard people say, that, you know, a, a child has passed away, and they'll say something like, well, God just needed another angel in heaven. Oh, okay, I'm good now. Oh, I was devastated and just completely heartbroken. I didn't know God was short on angels. So now I'm, I'm good. Thank you so much for that encouraging word. First of all, it's a complete lie, right? It, it sets up God as, as the one who, who is directly uh, the, the one you know, responsible for this. And we'll talk about that in a second. And then, it, we don't become angels. I don't know if that shocks anyone. We don't become angels after we die. Angels are a different creation of God. We're not angels. We don't become angels. Uh, and some of you guys are like, what? I, w- I won't have wings in heaven? How's, uh, how's heaven going to be awesome? Sorry. You will not. Here's what I always say. When people find out things about heaven in the Bible, and they're like, oh, that's not what I had in my mind. Here's, here's the guarantee. I, I will absolutely guarantee you, you will not be disappointed in heaven when we're there. It'll probably be totally different from what, you know, what, what our minds can fathom, but you will not be disappointed. We'll be in the very presence of Jesus. That's what makes heaven heaven. And so, anyways, now I'm getting off on, oh yeah, you know, sharing something like that, and I'm, I'm you know, I don't mean to be too mockery here. I don't think that's a word, but I don't mean to mock that too much, but, but trying to give little pat answers and say, oh, you're suffering and you're in pain. Here's my little cliche saying. Uh, here, I bought you this picture from Hobby Lobby. God needed more angels in heaven. And that devastates, right? That hurts more. Oh, well, God is the one directly responsible for this. He just selfishly wanted, my, you know... What kind of, oh, that, that doesn't, and there aren't words, I would say. There isn't answers. There is coming alongside someone and being there and loving them and sharing that pain with them. And even Jesus, that's, that's kind of the example we get there. But, but, but God's word does point out, you know, doesn't just leave us in the dark. There are some, thi- there are some things that, that we can look at that, that, uh, that point out how God uses suffering for our good. So number one, suffering comes from sin. And, and be, I want to be very careful as I share this. This does not mean your individual sin every time, although it could. It could be you sinned and the result of it was something that affected you and you're suffering because of it. And that's part of why God says, hey, I don't want you to sin because it brings death, it brings destruction, it brings broken relationships, it does all this stuff. But often we're affected by other people's sin also. And that's why God hates sin too. Uh, it, it, it affects everyone. Guess what? 
Adam and Eve, what they did in the garden, it affects you today, right? Sin, ultimately, all evil, all suffering, all pain comes out of rebellion against God. God's plan, and, and this isn't like God's taking, you know, surprise and he had to like figure out a, a way to, to combat sin or something. But his plan and what he set up is perfect and has no pain, no suffering, no evil. Now, in his, uh, in his plan, he, he gives us the option or, or he raises love and a relationship with him as a greater value than lack of pain and suffering. And so in order to give us the option to love him, there also has to be love demands a choice. And so there also has to be the choice to not love and to rebel. And that causes pain and suffering and evil. And, and God says, I would rather, my choice is to, allow, is, is to allow that so that people can have that choice to be in a loving relationship with me. Um, number two, we were made to honor God. In the midst of us focusing on our own lives and thinking that, well, you know, I'm trying to discover God and all the keys and the secrets to to what he wants and, and, and recognize him and follow him so that my life is better, you've got a really different perspective than what the Bible points out. But it's a common one that we see people who are, many people, a part of the Christian faith. That somehow we make the Christian faith about us and us as the central figure in the story. We're not the central figure in the story. It is about God. And, and um, when we think of that, um, the gospel, the good news, if we approach it as a way of somehow it's so focused on us that we just look at what we get out of it, we completely miss what the gospel is, what the good news is. The good news is about getting us to a restored relationship with God so that we can do what we were created to do, which is what? Love him, worship him, point to him, honor him. That's what we were created to do. And if that sounds disappointing, it, it isn't. Like I said with heaven, you won't be disappointed in that if you discover that because God created you and wired you to exist to do that. So we find our greatest joy, our greatest purpose, our greatest sense of being in worshiping God, in loving God, and in being in that perfect relationship with him. And, and, and he loves us back. It's a beautiful, it's not like it's a complete uh, one-way street, but the honor and the glory and the purpose and the focus. Now, you just think about how usually when we develop and we come up with a religion, it's focused on us. And, and how can I get into this system so that I can elevate myself to some level? That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. The gospel is completely and totally focused uh, on God. Um, Jesus is the hero of all of Scripture. You see this bad theology, bad Bible teaching 
in, in, in looking at, sometimes we take you know, big stories in the Old Testament, and we always make them about us. It's not about us. Uh, uh, David and Goliath, right? You've got, okay, what's this story about? Why does God give us this picture of what happened? Because we have giants in our lives, right? And we have difficulty and pain. And if we, you know, trust God, we can slay those giants. That's just, we're so American. And that's just like a modern form of theology that we look at the Bible in that lens. It's not about us. We're not the main character. We are the Israelite army peeing in our armor going, what are we going to do? There's an obstacle in front of us that is impossible. What are we going to do? And, and God comes along. You guys got a real uh, image in there, right? Okay, sorry. <laughs> We're shaking and trembling and like, oh, um, that's us. We're, that's our role in this story, okay? And David is giving a picture of Jesus to come. He's not Jesus. He's imperfect. But he is the greatest king of Israel, considered by the, the nation of Israel. And, and he's pointing to the ultimate king of kings and that he will destroy what humanity knows and sees as our greatest obstacle when we just look at this, this life, which is the lack of life, death. What do we do with this death thing? How do we conquer this death thing? <clears throat> and, and that's the picture so, Jesus, so David is pointing to Jesus, or yeah, Jesus, and, and Goliath is ultimately, you know, our greatest obstacle to, to God and our, our greatest fear in life and the thing that, and that's what it's about. But do you see how we do that? We, we take, and we look at the Bible in lens of like me and my situation and my world and how it benefits me and how I'll be, uh, how things will be better for me. Um, so don't do that. Uh, number four. Um, no, where are we? Whoa. Hello. We're made to honor God. Not a, okay, number three. His ways are not my ways. And I know this may be one that may, might be the most common. To just say, you know what? We don't understand. His ways are above our ways. And I hope that doesn't come across as cliche because it is true. You know, when, when um, I'm looking, okay, there's Karis. Karis, my little daughter, uh, when she was, you know, uh, at the age where she could maybe even barely talk or even before then, and we had to take her to the doctor to get shots, um, man, that, that was awful. And no, we won't get into a debate of, like, you know, vaccination debate. Don't, sorry, put that aside. But, but just, sorry, yeah, okay, we did that, and we had her vaccinated, or whatever shot she was supposed to get. And when she was so young, and I'm standing in the room, you know where I'm headed. You know that look she gives daddy? And that look she gives mom? Like, why are you allowing them to do this? You, this is hurtful. This is incredibly painful. And they just, they look at you like, why? And you can't explain it to them. And you can't, there's nothing you can do. You know, well, there's actually, we developed this system where if you put antibodies into your system that, you know, you actually will not get this disease. You know, try to explain that to a two-year-old. And, and I, I'm not trying to oversimplify, but God stands outside of time and space. 
he created and spoken to existence. Like when you start to think about heaven and it being eternal and our life just seeming like a vapor and a, just here one day, gone the next. Well, if you're in an eternal setting where you're out, because time, heaven's not constricted by time. It's outside of that. And you just, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to, just that, you're like, wait a minute. How does that work? And we have a God who stands way, he's got this 20,000 foot view of what's happening in the world and on what, how he has allowed things to take place. And we have this, you know, small little perspective and we don't understand, um, you know, and it's similar to that, that, that can we recognize truly and fully that God is good and that he is in control and he's doing what's best. Think about this. Perhaps, what if God has set up and orchestrated the universe and the world and and tuned it in such a way that the maximum amount of people will come to faith through Jesus? And and we we, we can't see how that all works. But perhaps, let's say that that's what he's done. And in doing that, he has allowed some suffering and evil into the equation. Because how would we come to an understanding of what's not good and what's evil if we don't know anything about evil, if we've never been exposed to evil, if all we know is, is good? And, and then where would we ever have a choice? You know, and, and now I'm just kind of circling the drain of like phil, phil, philosophical debates and questions. But ultimately, if we could just step back and go, we are not God. And most of the people that I've run into, including me, at, at, for uh, a portion of my life, have basically said, I'm the most knowledgeable, smartest thing in the universe, or period. And by saying that, I can make these judgments on, okay, this, this is not right. God could not be. Here's my trilemma. There's no way he could be all loving, all good, and allow suffering. But yet, Ignore the fact that I don't know all things, right? And there's a, a being who does know all things. Um, and it goes into the next point is I'm not a good qualifier. I'm not a qualified judge of good or fair. Man, my grandpa, he, uh, he was a judge out in Nevada. He was a lawyer and then he was a judge. And um, he cut the seatbelts out, out of their car, <laughs> because in his perspective, (laughs) I just say he's a judge because, like, he's supposed to, like, uphold the law. And back then, there was no seatbelt laws. And uh, he saw some instances. He was up in the Tahoe, Reno, kind of Carson City area, and and there's some horrible mountain wrecks coming down. And and they thought the seatbelts did more harm than good, especially back then they were just lap belts, you know, not the... And uh, so he cut them out of the car. Um, that was his idea of good <laughs> and better, <laughs> you know. Um, we, uh, back in World War II, they used to hand out cigarettes to the soldiers like candy, you know, just like, hey, man, we got to get morale up, and here's, you know, they don't do that today. <laughs> like, these silly examples of just um, how our perspective on different moral items and what's good and what's bad, we can see how it changes from generation to generation. And ultimately, 
we are not the best judges of what is ultimately good when we look at the whole universe and the whole world and what is happening throughout history. And there's a God who created the, the possibility of history that, that is. Um, number five, our, our suffering is short-lived, Paul will point out many times. He calls it light and momentary, the suffering he's gone through. And, and, and I, I like this perspective. Um, you ever go to a job interview and they ask you, Sadie, where do you see yourself in five years? Ah, oh, man. Questions, answering like the standard questions. What is your greatest strength and your greatest weakness? Don't you hate that? And what do you always say? My greatest weakness is I work too hard, <laughs> right? I'm a workaholic. Uh, anyways, uh, <laughs> what's my point? Uh, that... We have a limited perspective. Where do you see yourself in five years, ten years? Where do you see yourself in 500 years? Where, where do you see yourself after this, this life? That, that we are, um, our, our, this life, the Bible reminds us time and time again that even if we get the average span of 75 years that we feel like is such a wonderful triumph of now, you know, people live to to that, you know, average age or 80 or whatever, that that is just, I mean, in eternity, it is just this little nothingness in comparison. And it's hard to compare something that's non-time to time, but still, that, that um, and I don't mean to minimize any pain and suffering that people have to endure for many years, but the Bible says that we can be comforted knowing that this will be ended at some point, and that relatively it is a short, um, a short span. Um, what good comes from suffering? What does the Bible have to say from, about that? Number one, it helps us turn from sin. And if we truly view sin, the common, the modern-day world of looking at sin is, is it some exciting, thrilling, mystic, uh, mysterious thing that... that, that if, if you're like a goody good person, you, you miss out on. But if you can indulge in sin, man, that's, that's good times. Um, that's not how the Bible describes sin. It describes sin as something that kills and destroys and causes incredible pain and suffering. And, and if we don't see it in the short term, the, the long-term effects of it are, are devastating. And... and um, so if we view it the way God views it, it's a good thing. If he can use, what is that good to make us more like Jesus? He can use suffering and, and, um, for us to, to realize and turn from our sin. Quickly in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10, it says, I'm not sorry that I sent you that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a little while. Uh, it's not up there. But Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he's like, man, I wrote you some harsh things. I addressed some sin issues in your life. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get excited about it. Whenever, whenever you want to tell somebody about their sin, and you're kind of excited about that, that's, that's you sinning. That's you bringing condemnation and judgment to someone. But whenever you're like, oh, man, this hurts me. And I love this person, person, and I don't want it to destroy them or hurt them ultimately. 
but because I love them, and if I feel like I'm in a position, like I'm, you know, uh, a, a leader in their church and help start it, like, uh, I, the loving thing to do is that difficult, but that's the key. It should be difficult. If you want to point out someone's sin, you go pray. Go pray about that. But if it's hard for you to do that, but you really feel like you have to, and you want the ultimate conclusion for them to get out of the the slavery and the chains of sin, as the Bible describes it, then then Paul goes on to say, now I'm glad I sent it to you, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you are not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from our sin. Number two, it helps us rely on Jesus. If you've talked to people who who have gone through a lot of painful things and everything has been taken away in their life. I've got some references. Job is the classic example, but um, there's there's many throughout Christian history, throughout history of people following and worshiping God. You can find people who everything's been taken from them. And the intimacy and the love they have for Jesus is unmatched. I've run into some people like that in in my own life and heard some incredible stories of people like that. Because when everything else is taken away that we kind of put our trust and our hope in and our focus on, and you decide to continue to put your trust and lean into Jesus, you discover that Jesus is enough. And that is an incredible thing to discover. And, And so... Um, it helps us do that. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, Paul says this, We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province, province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. And we, when we thought we would never live through it, uh, we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. One of the most powerful stories of that I've heard was a Christian group that got kidnapped. Um, and and I, I believe it was, well, I, it was somewhere where people get kidnapped. <laughs> Just a very dark, horrible place. And they were tortured. And they, they, they had nothing except pain and suffering and God and, and Jesus. And, and there was about a group of eight of them, if I remember this correctly. And months afterwards, they got back together and they wept over the fact that many of them, their overall feeling was that they wished they were back in that situation. And it totally confused them. Why would we want to be back in such a horrible, horrible situation? Because at that moment, they turned to Jesus, and there was this incredible closeness. And what they all experienced is they said, since that point, coming back and getting acclimated back into their lives, they did not experience that closeness with God that, that they did in, in, those, in that situation. So sometimes that's, that's God can use that to draw us and rely on Jesus. Number three, and we've kind of mentioned this, just to become more like Jesus, to shape our character in a way that, that loves people like Jesus loves them and, and um, works in our life in that way. I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to sing one last song. And as we do that, we do this song at the, at the end to give us a time to reflect on what God's said in his word. Um, and I pray that, uh, 
that as you reflect on this, like I said, it's not something we want to, you know, be as our main focus, that, hey, you will go through suffering and pain, but that is the reality of life, and Jesus recognized it. But we have a God that that doesn't make him less God, and that doesn't make, that doesn't, should never put you in a situation to think, well, God doesn't love me as much, or somehow I'm putting condemnation on myself that I'm not living up to some standard or something but that, that these are some of the things that God points to of how he can actually use that for our good. The last thing I want to share before we sing this song is I love that you know humanity, I think, would say that our greatest problem when you just have a secular mindset is death. Like, how do we overcome death? I hear more and more of these, these uh, super rich billionaires and tech companies um, doing stuff like, like uh, Walt Disney did, you know, like freeze their heads or whatever and hoping someday they'll figure out the technology to, to bring them back to life and give them some robotic body or something like that. Are you guys tracking with me? This is weird. Okay. <laughs> because, man, if we have the means, what would we spend, you know, uh, our money on, man? How do, man, my life is limited. We all know that. Crazy stat I like to share. One out of one people die, right? And, and so what do we do about that? And we've tried to figure out all these ways to extend our life. And is there any way, you know, and of course, Jesus is the answer. But here's a beautiful picture. God says, I'm going to take this death thing that is, that is a result of sin. And here's, here's how he makes things good. He, he takes death. He says, that's going to be the means in which you actually conquer what you think is your greatest problem. I'm going to take the death of my son, and that is going to give you the option, the the possibility of eternal life if you trust in him. And I'm going to take your very death, and if you've put your trust in Jesus, that's going to lead you into the greatest thing you could ever know, being in my presence. As Paul would say, to live is Christ and to, to die is gain. If we're absent from the body, we're in the presence of the Lord. And so that's the God that is greater than anything we can imagine or think of how he works things out. But he does.